one year since Article 370 was nullified and the Constitution one that lasted nearly a year. It was imposed on August 5th of 2019. That was the day Narendra Modi's government in New Delhi changed the rules on the way the Indian-controlled part of the region is governed, instantly denying Jammu and Kashmir a degree of independence that was negotiated more than 70 years ago in 1947. Having revoked that part of the constitution, Modi then placed an already militarized region under a communications blockade. Kashmir is disputed territory. The countries involved, India, Pakistan, and China, are all nuclear powers. Each comes armed with its own narrative that doesn't match the way many Kashmiris see themselves. On this program, we're focusing on the Indian-administered part of Kashmir. Later in the show, we'll hear from three Kashmiri journalists on the challenges of reporting with their communications curtailed. First, though, the background story on a region that's been contested on the ground and in the news media ever since India's independence seven decades ago. History changes. Empires, governments, and ideologies come and go. What never changes is geography. The geographical reality for the people of Kashmir is that the territory they live in is in dispute. And unlike any other geopolitical flashpoint on the planet, the main antagonists involved, India, Pakistan, and China, which administers part of the region, all happen to be nuclear powers. You have to understand that Kashmir stands between three nuclear states. All of them lay claim to parts of it. And in a world which is very uncertain, that puts us in a very precarious position where the Jammu and Kashmir dispute is uh, concerned. If we try and really x-ray down to the very base of what is happening when India and Pakistan speak about Kashmir, they're both uh, functioning from the classical liberatory discourse of possession and liberation. So both of them have wanted to possess and also in the name of liberation done things to Kashmiris that have made their sufferings worse. There is no narrative of Kashmir. It is only two contesting sides. And when we say that there are only two contesting narratives, we are essentially talking about the 1947 history of the partition of India. 72 years after that partition, on August 5th, 2019, the government in New Delhi fundamentally changed the relationship between Kashmir and India. It revoked what is known as Article 370 that gave Kashmir its special status. To understand the significance the change had on the lives of Kashmiris, one must consider the history. When the partition occurred, just as the subcontinent gained its independence from Britain, the ruler of the princely state known as Jammu and Kashmir, Maharaja Hari Singh, had a decision to make. He was Hindu, 
most of his subjects were Muslim. He was trying to play India and Pakistan off against each other to preserve Jammu and Kashmir's independence. Just months after the British pulled out, when the region was invaded by Muslim fighters from Pakistan, he chose to accede his territory to India. The condition he demanded was that Jammu and Kashmir be accorded a special status, including autonomy on key issues such as citizenship and property rights. That formed the bedrock of the relationship between the Indian state and Kashmiris. In Jammu and Kashmir, uh, there are so many versions of history, depending on where you begin. Do you begin history hundreds of years ago? Do you begin history in 1947, where the Hindu king decided to sign the letter of accession towards India and not to Pakistan? Do you begin history when the first Prime Minister Jawaharlal Nehru went to the United Nations and said this is an international dispute now? Over the course of these different events, I think, that formulated the sense of Jammu and Kashmir's existence has also come a sense of grievance, that every promise that was given at these most important points in history has in fact been overturned. India broke every promise, Pakistan broke every promise. These ridges in history are essentially defined in Kashmiri narratives by that. When Kashmir acceded to India in 1947, it did so without consulting its citizens. Vague promises of a referendum came to nothing. Pakistan has always called that accession fraudulent, refusing to accept its legality. Pakistan and India have since fought three wars over Kashmir. In 1947, 1965, and again in 1999. That last war took place in the region of Kargil, it was the first armed conflict ever fought between nuclear powers. It lasted just two and a half months, but it changed things. India's media sector was booming. Dozens of new 24-hour news channels were on the air competing for viewers. With Kargil War, the, the narrative changed because it was for the first time that the Kashmir was brought to the living rooms of uh, people uh, through, the, through their TV sets. That changed the way uh, people in this country looked at Kashmir. What you heard right behind you was the sound of Bofors guns directly targeting the top of Tiger Hill. So Kargil War becomes one of those first wars, the, the India-Pakistan sense, to get mediatized in that way. And, uh, and we, we still see the legacy of some of that, you know, last year, uh, in the aftermath of the Pulwama attacks, when there were fears of India-Pakistan war, the hyper-nationalism that you saw in the TV studios, journalists in combat fatigues and speaking in very aggressive terms about confronting the enemy, that sort of thing is, is, is the legacy of that moment. One chapter of Kashmir's history that for years went underreported began a decade before the Kargil War. The mass forced exodus of the region's Hindu minority, the Kashmiri pundits, starting in 1990. Separatist movements, some prone to violence, many backed by Pakistan, were on the rise, attacking Indian forces and Kashmiri pundits. Pundits still speak of the threats they heard from mosques, delivered over loudspeakers. On January 4, 1990, a Kashmiri newspaper published a press release from an Islamic militant group, the Hizbul Mujahideen, advising pundits to leave. Panic set in. 
Within two years of the 75,000 pundit families in Kashmir, more than 70,000 fled. Today, three decades later, only about 800 such families remain. What happened afterwards is more tragic than the exile itself. The story of Kashmiri Pandits was relegated to the margins because for the media, here was a set of people, Kashmiri Muslims, who were brutalized by the Indian state. But at the same time, they forgot the fact that the same set of people had brutalized another set of people who happened to be Kashmiri Pandits in this case. Over the years, the displacement of Kashmiri Pandits has grown into a potent issue for Hindu nationalists, who now get a disproportionate amount of airtime on Indian news channels and use the pundit issue to justify the government's policies on Jammu and Kashmir. I don't know that it's the official stance of the government of India that, uh, you know, whatever we do to Kashmiri Muslims is legitimized because of what has happened to Kashmiri pundits. Pundits who were hounded out of their homes and faced persecution but the likes of Muftis and Abdullahs want to pander to separatists. But certainly I've witnessed, you know, so-called so debates on television where Kashmiri pundits prefer this as an argument for sort of legitimizing revenge in a way. For God's sake, do not use our uh, story as a, as, a, as a military weapon. One story of pain does not have to exist at the cost of another story. Both these stories of pain have a right to coexist. If you look at the visuals that were beamed on Indian TV channels on the afternoon of August 5 when the Article 370 was abrogated, a few Kashmiri Pandits here and there distributing sweets, etc. They have a right to do that because as Kashmiris they have a stake in the Kashmir story. But that does not mean that they are happy that Kashmiris back home are facing an unprecedented situation. So that perpetuates a discourse of competing victimhoods where the memories and histories of two different communities are always pitted against each other. And it doesn't result in justice for anyone, but it's quite useful for political profit for an ethno-nationalist communal party that is taking the nation quite clearly now with every passing day we see on, an, on a proto-fascist uh, trajectory. That is the political reality that is India under the BJP the inescapable context of the Kashmir issue today. In August of 2019, when the Modi government unilaterally eliminated Kashmir's autonomy, it had to alter the constitution to do it. It revoked what is known as Article 370 that gave Kashmir its special status. Narendra Modi was making good on an election promise. The legislation was rushed through Parliament, troops poured into the region, elected leaders in Kashmir were placed under house arrest, and communications were cut off. For the most part, they still are. It doesn't matter whether it's been the Congress or the Bharatiya Janata Party at the helm of the power, Kashmir remains an emotive issue. What has happened uh, in the context of the abrogation of Article 370 on August 5 is that a Rubicon has been crossed. An entire political party, which is the BJP, came into existence over this issue alone. Their existence is founded in the idea that India has to be one nation, one flag, one constitution. And Jammu and Kashmir had a separate constitution, separate flag and separate law. Therefore, it was historic from that perspective. Now, Jammu and Kashmir is completely integrated 
with the rest of the states and union territories in the union of india the kind of uh, sweeping measures the government took whether it came to stopping the internet arrests of all the top leadership the complete shutdown of the political process inside jammu and kashmir the government in delhi was no longer going to make any kind of adjustment if you like for what was uh, originally a, a special state the modi government justifies the communications lockdown as the most effective way to disrupt the operations of extremist groups it calls terrorists new delhi has frequently used fighting extremism as a basis for blockades from 2012 to 2018 the internet was shut down 125 times in jammu and kashmir those blockages would typically end in a day or two this one has lasted more than a year the internet has gone from being completely blacked out for the first 5 months to moving in slow motion since with 2g speeds that seem to take forever having relied on constitutional lawyers to rewrite the law of the land men in uniform to patrol the streets of kashmir it experts to carefully limit communications there why did it take us 72 years and indian news channels to spread the message in the rest of the country the bjp has both shaped this debate and limited it severely in the weeks that followed the august 5th decision i think uh, it is safe to say uh, that no television channel actually challenged the government's version there is an overwhelming unbelievable sense of true pride and the fact that in our lifetimes before our very eyes the integration of jammu and kashmir has actually happened in fact most of them not only endorsed it uh, the, the visuals they showed the debates they held uh, seemed to indicate that nobody wanted to challenge the government's decision if there were to be a one hour just a one hour program on an indian super mainstream channel at prime time that actually lays just the bare facts of kashmir's history political dispute just even the bare facts even something as tiny as a drop in the ocean is that would make a significant impact and they do not know because it's not on their tv it's not in their papers you just kind of keep on with that sanctioned ignorance enforced silence and perpetuate your own narrative the kashmiri narrative is very stark and that is listen we, we just want to be left alone to live as we would like to live and that we were told at one point that we would be asked as to what we would like for our future both those things have not happened that is the kashmiri narrative which has been ignored completely when you uh, say that uh, there is no kashmiri narrative are you not lying are you not uh, hoodwinking people because in the last 30 years you been saying that kashmiris want independence how did this point of view become so mainstream if you were not given the space to speak what you wanted but the truth is that he alone is not a kashmiri there are kashmiri pandits there are kashmiri sikhs there are kashmiri muslims who swear by india are they not kashmiris uh, am i not a kashmiri the current state of kashmir is critical because india itself is redefining itself whether it is going to be a secular democracy or whether it is going to be a religious republic or a majoritarian 
community. And I think the significance of that is that it has uh, huge implications for a territory like Kashmir, and most importantly, the people of Kashmir. Denied their normal means of communication, Kashmiri journalists have had to find new ways to do the job. Consider what they're up against. Checkpoints, roadblocks, restrictions on movement. And even if they are able to research stories, get to sources, have information verified, and produce a report, how do they get it out? Some reporters have been smuggling news content out on hard drives. Others are forced to queue up at a state-run media facilitation center to upload stories knowing that they run the risk of government surveillance. Harassment and intimidation of journalists is far too common. Daring to question the official line can land them in a police interrogation room. The end result is self-censorship, a sanitized local media, ill-equipped to report what this new reality means for citizens there. We've spoken with three local journalists on the work that they do to make sure that the Kashmiri narrative isn't completely blacked out. There was already a military lockdown here in Kashmir since August 5th. And then when this corona came, it was like a, a lockdown within a lockdown. The communication blockade, first of all, it had completely silenced a majority of the population of Jammu and Kashmir. An entire population being pushed behind an iron wall. What the government is trying to do is to tell an entire population that we are in control of your lives. What changed after August 5 is the level of intimidation. It is for the first time that police has taken over the control of journalism and journalists in Kashmir and they ensure that no journalist moves from the government narrative and no journalist tries to do inconvenient journalism. As a photojournalist, it was very harsh, it was very difficult. Like, you know, working in Kashmir past many years, I have covered different uprisings, different uh, movements, different protests. I have covered the funerals of militants. But since 5th August, what happened, it was altogether a very different thing. There were like huge number of Indian forces everywhere, on the road, in the cities, in the alleys or everywhere, you know, around Kashmir. It had been very difficult to even, like, move because we were being stopped at many places. In Kashmir, there was already a military lockdown here, but since the pandemic happened, we had, again, a lockdown. For the world, it was, it was a lockdown for the first time, but for me, for us in Kashmir, for people here, I could see it has been happening for a year. Even if I shoot stories, I'm not able to communicate to my editors on time. I'm not able to, you know, access the high-speed internet at my home. I go to my friend's place every day. I have to travel like kilometers and kilometers just to like file or check my email. So it's like, it's, it's a very sad situation, traveling distances to just, you know, send a single story. As a freelancer, I also find it very difficult, like working in Kashmir, just because I saw many of my colleagues, people who are working as journalists, photographers, or writers, or authors, they were being summoned uh, for the stories they have done. So it also uh, has an uh, impact on my life as well, personally, because I also somehow feel scared. Oh, 
what happens is then you do self censorship i'm not like able to uh, uh, openly talk about things that are happening in kashmir just because you know i also fear that if today uh, some of my uh, colleagues are being called tomorrow they might call me I think it was peak of covid uh, it was april 19th sunday so i received a call from cyber police that i am required in their office first i was asked to sit in the cyber police then i was taken to cargo which is meant for hardcore militants so it was there i was questioned so one can understand the kind of intimidation you get at a place which is meant for hardcore militants i was asked by the cyber police uh, regarding uh, a story which was published about a family Uh, which claimed that uh, they are being allowed to collect the body of a suspected militant who they claimed may have been their son i based my report on the uh, on the interviews which i had of the families but the administration said they never allowed the families to collect the bodies so there lied the dispute uh, the fact remained that i did try to get in touch with the deputy commissioner uh, on many platforms but he did not reply i don't think it was about the story they were really unhappy with the kind of journalism i have been doing since august 5 uh, not just me other colleagues also anyone who has done inconvenient journalism uh, the state has ensured they are either summoned or there is an indirect intimidation delivered to them a reputed author uh, was booked under uapa an act which is usually uh, slapped against hardcore militants then you saw a young budding photojournalist masrat zehra she was also slapped by uapa uh, which otherwise would uh, be slapped on someone who has been into militancy for many many years i also faced a case under section 505 for inciting people i think uh, they chose these cases deliberately they wanted to ensure that every sphere of journalism uh, gets this message that if you deviate from the government narrative if you try to uh, bring uh, reality to the fore you will face action you know you are not sure if you do a ground report if you will be home tomorrow or in a police station that is the kind of fear we live in as a journalist i think i'm uh, equally worried because of the impact of what has happened on the future of media the media is unable to perform in the way it should be performing kashmir has been through one of the most turbulent periods ever and still we haven't in- heard enough stories the blockade itself is a way of intimidating the journalist because when you take away today's uh, technology uh internet telephones these are not uh, privileges these are vital tools that are used by journalists these days and to take away their tools itself is intimidating and it um, instills a sense of fear uh in their minds itself 
course, it's not that um, the entire media has been silenced. There are people who are doing their work very bravely, very courageously. But what is disturbing is that it is the local media which is being squeezed more, which is being controlled more. And this is something that is being consciously done by the government, whether it is by arm twisting them, whether it is by stopping their advertisements. And this is consciously being done because local media becomes a vital um, tool, uh, provides a vital platform for the local people, uh, empowering them and uh, providing them voice, giving them platform, giving their uh, issues and problems a uh, platform. And uh, Kashmir Times has always tried to uh, perform this kind of a job. To be frank, I think uh, Kashmir Times' ability has been hampered even before August 5th. This process was in the making for many, many years. I'm not sure whether we can continue the way we are continuing. Uh, I'm not even sure whether we, I can manage to keep alive the institution which is um, 65 years old. But uh, what keeps me going is that whole motto behind uh, the organization to uphold the values and the ethics of journalism to become a voice of the voiceless to fight for liberal democracy. I mean, at the end of the day, you only have two choices. One is you completely surrender. The other is you, you fight back. So I choose the latter. It's been more than a year now since Kashmiris officially lost what autonomy they had and then saw their media slowly suffocate. News organizations are supposed to give voice to the voiceless. When they are effectively silenced, so are the populations they cover. Where does that leave Jammu and Kashmir? At the mercy of the Modi government, in a country that still likes to brand itself the world's largest democracy. You've been watching a special edition of our program on the competing narratives and the media stranglehold in Kashmir. We'll see you next time here at The Listening Post.